You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I'm in grad school at Caltech studying stellar structure, which is how the stars are made. And I tripped across this name, Annie Jump Cannon. I had never heard of her. She had lived 60 years earlier and had been the one who first categorized the stars, sort of the way taxonomists categorize critters. And that was the big step in learning how the stars perform, how they work. I was astounded by that. I certainly knew of some women in astronomy, of course, but they were all contemporaries. They were working at the time. They weren't big historical figures. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. Welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where researchers investigate the nature and origin of life. In the U.S., women make up more than half the population. But in the tech industry, men outnumber women three to one. What's keeping those numbers from being more equal? Well, there are many reasons. One is the lack of female role models. The history of science and technology is replete with the accomplishments of men. Those of women can often feel as though they were written in invisible ink. In this episode, we bring you a few stories of women overlooked by history. Two whose pioneering work blazed the way for today's mathematicians, coders, and codebreakers. And the head of the organization, Girls Who Code, offers tips on how we can do a better job keeping women working in research and technology. It's Decode Her. When the program 60 Minutes aired an episode called Closing the Gender Gap in the Tech Industry in March of 2019, it offered solutions to a pressing problem. Middle school is roughly when uh, girls traditionally drop out of STEM fields. Uh, and for computer science, they've not, not even been exposed to it at that young age in many cases. And that's when we need to start. The tech entrepreneur Hadi Partovi made an excellent point. His successful nonprofit, Code.org, has introduced 10 million girls to coding, and his work is part of the effort to provide tech opportunities to girls. But Dr. Partovi's appearance on the program was itself a problem for many women in his field, due to no fault of his own. Many women in tech vented on social media that the 60-minute segment focused solely on one man's experience in recruiting girls into tech, while women-led groups have been working on that problem for years. The program aired in Women's History Month, and that irony wasn't lost on Reshma Sajani, the head of Girls Who Code. 60 Minutes did a segment about girls and technology without featuring any women-led organizations that were actually doing the work to close the gender gap in tech, whether it's Girls Who Code, Black Girls Code, NCWIT you know, uh, who, whose mission is to close the gender gap in technology. And I think by doing that, by leading the story with a male whose organization is not to close the gender gap in technology, but to teach more kids to code, I think 60 Minutes was contributing to a long history in media of erasing women in tech or just erasing women from industries. And it means that thought leaders, girls, parents, are less likely to hear about organizations like ours and it means that fewer girls have role models to look up to. We'll hear more from Reshma Sajani about the strategies for helping women thrive in mathematics and coding careers. But first, stories of women from history who managed to do so 
against great odds. Computers have been around longer than you think. The term computer goes back to the 17th century, and it meant, well, one who computes. The work of NASA mathematicians Katherine Johnson, Dorothy Vaughn, and Mary Jackson, popularized by the book and film Hidden Figures, showcased the significant contributions of human computers of the mid-20th century. But before women in pencil skirts performed complicated calculations that helped land humans on the moon, their mathematical foremothers, laced up in corsets and floor-length skirts, made astronomical calculations as the first female human computers. Well, yes, society in 1900 had strict dress codes, but to lift a line from Henrietta Leavitt, the real-life heroine of a play by Lauren Gunderson, The universe doesn't much care what we wear. Mathematics is mathematics, and the astronomer Henrietta Leavitt used it to come up with a new tool for determining the structure of the universe. Lauren Gunderson's plays center on women's stories, and with the exclusion of Shakespeare, her plays are staged more often than anyone else's in the United States, including Eugene O'Neill and August Wilson. She was the most produced playwright of 2017 to 2018. Henrietta Leavitt's story from the end of the 19th century when she began her employment with Harvard Observatory until the time of her death is dramatized in Lauren Gunderson's play Silent Sky that has had and continues to have dozens of runs around the world. I think we ought to build you a study for all these boxes. I'm sorry. This clip is from the 2018 Repertory Philippines production of Silent Sky in the city of Makati. It amazes me that the entire universe fits on these tiny window panes. Look how shockingly full it all is. It doesn't look that full from the backyard. But every one of them is just bursting with stars. Henrietta Leavitt spent long hours analyzing the brightness of stars captured on photographic plates, also known as window panes, to see if their luminosity had changed between exposures. Her work helped solve a central question about the universe. Just how big was it? Lauren, Henrietta Swan Leavitt was an astronomer at the beginning of the 20th century who, as we'll hear, made a fundamentally important discovery for astronomy and, for that matter, cosmology. But that may not sound like a story that begs to be dramatized. So why did you want to bring it to the stage? You know, there's a lot of reasons. One, I tend to collect stories of female scientists, and I'll tell you why. Because they make the best heroines. As protagonists, we're looking as dramatists for people who have a lot to lose, who have to struggle to get what they want, who have a lot to risk, who have a lot to prove. And frankly, that's women in science. (laughs) So women in science over and over for me, whether I'm writing about Ada Lovelace or Emily Chatelet or Henrietta Leavitt, present really incredible protagonists. Well, you know, that brings up the question of most drama requires a villain. You need something to struggle against. And, uh, you know, What's the villain here in this story? (laughs) Um, It's less helpful in this story to think about it as a villain, but certainly kind of the institution and traditions of science and who gets to do it, who's allowed in the room, are one of the big forces that she's fighting against as a woman. But also, science is tough. And the truth within nature, sometimes it's not easy to discover. So what she's doing is going against, uh, frankly, the scientific method, (laughs) which can go against you unless you get it just right. So... That's part of what she's working so hard. Were there specific points in her life that you used to build your narrative? Yes. So it is true that she was deaf, which I thought was a really compelling thing for a protagonist to study the stars. I mean, the, the title of the play is Silent Sky. And she had this habit of taking off her hearing device, which was back then kind of big and clunky anyway. I can imagine you wouldn't want that on you all the time where you're trying to be thoughtful and creative. But she would take it off. And that's when she was able to really concentrate. So she was really able to tune tune out the whole world to focus on her research. She wasn't alone in the deafness uh, category. There was somebody else working there in the same building who was uh, also important to astronomy, who was also deaf, right? Indeed, Annie Jump Cannon. Okay, so you open the play with Henrietta, having recently graduated from Radcliffe College, although I don't think it was called Radcliffe at the time, uh, arguing with her fictional sister about taking a job at the Harvard Observatory. And Henrietta's passionate about astronomy, Why is she arguing with her sister? (laughs) Because we need to set up the dual dynamic of, frankly, women's choices at the time. Her sister is saying, 
stay here, stay with the family, get a job teaching some elementary school kids and, you know, just live your life here. Don't push it. She even goes on and on about the wearing of pants, which is becoming, (laughs) in her mind, distastefully um, popular with women. And Henrietta says, I want to follow my mind and my heart and I want to take this chance. And I know it's unconventional, but I don't care. I want to do it. So, so her sister represents the forces of tradition, trying to bring her back into the uh, accepted fold. Exactly. Okay. Lauren, you dramatized the reception Levitt received when she showed up at work at the Harvard Observatory. We have an audio clip of that, uh, and this is from the performance of Silent Sky at the first Folio Theater in Oak Brook, Illinois in 2017. Can you set up this clip for us? Who who is she meeting? Sure. So this is Henrietta's very first time walking into the Harvard Observatory, and the first person she meets is a young man named Peter Shaw, who's played by Wardell Julius Clark, and Henrietta's played by Cassandra Bissell. You see, I'm Dr. Pickering's apprentice, junior fellow in astronomical research. Summa cum laude, mathematics and physics. And if you spot me, I'll swoon. I also graduated summa cum laude from Radcliffe, which is basically Harvard in skirts. But lucky for us, the universe doesn't much care what you wear. So my expertise and yours might very well complement each other's if we can get past this encroachingly unpleasant first impression. So here's Henrietta, college graduate, the female counterpart for the all-male Harvard College, (laughs) and she wants to use the telescope at the Harvard Observatory, which was a big refractor uh, and, you know, a world-class telescope, at least at the time. Uh Does she persuade him to uh, let her use the telescope? Uh, Not until the very end of the dang play, (laughs) which has some symbolism to it, of course. I found that detail pretty shocking, that women were not allowed to use the telescope, partly because of social norms, being a woman, being alone at night, of course, which is when you would want to use a telescope with a bunch of men, that seems just absolutely unconscionable. So the idea that we're again fighting what seems obvious now as just, well, so what? <laughs> um, but back then, that, that was a big thing. But I think you do have a scene in which she and her friends break into the observatory <laughs> so that they can use the telescope. Uh, did that actually happen? I mean, I'm going to say yes, because you never know. <laughs> it's it's the kind of the big dramatic scene at the end of the play, which caps off this sense of agency that Henrietta has gained throughout the whole play. And frankly, all of the people in the play have gained this. Henrietta's sister, who started again as the more traditional domestic role for women, it's her idea, uh, Margaret's idea to go, you know what, we're breaking in. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's turn to the science. She's taken the job at Harvard College Observatory, and she's working under the guy in charge there, astronomer Charles Edward Pickering. Uh, she's assigned to a task that young men, who were originally hired by Pickering, uh, couldn't do. They were kind of making a dog's breakfast out of, out of this <laughs> challenge. What were they asked to do, and why couldn't they do it? You know, that is a question for the ages. I don't know. The male astronomers that they hired weren't detailed enough oriented. They weren't impatient. They didn't want to do this. They wanted to be out there with the big instruments, the big telescopes. So the most wonderful story um, that is in the play is the character of Wilhelmina Fleming, who was the very first Harvard quote-unquote computer that Pickering hired. And she was straight off the boat from Scotland. And she was amazing and actually changed a lot of science. She found incredible things in these glass plates, which is what the scientists use. The very beginning of photographic astronomy was at this time. So they had big window pane-sized glass plates with the pictures of the sky on them. So that's what Williamina started looking and detecting and noting and measuring. And then, of course, was followed up by Annie Cannon and a lot of other women, including Henrietta. So she was handed these glass plates, which were just photos of the southern sky made with this telescope in Peru. But what was she supposed to do with them? She was basically mapping the entire sky. So her and her colleagues were there to give research points on every single thing that they could see. This was magnitude, location, if it was in a different place or different size than last time. So everything they could do to basically make a library of every celestial object. Okay, but her fame eventually came from the study of a subclass of all these stars, namely variable stars. Maybe you could tell me about variable stars. Indeed, they vary. (laughs) Um, They are a specific kind of star called a Cepheid variable, and what they do is they blink. So over various amounts of time, they get brighter and dimmer and brighter and dimmer. And a lot of them come from the same part of the sky. So what made that really interesting to Henrietta eventually, once she figured out how to arrange the measurements in a way to find a clear pattern, was she came up basically with what is now called a standard candle. 
Okay, so she was studying variable stars. There are, there are various kinds of stars that, that change in brightness over the course of hours, usually days, maybe even weeks. And a particular category of these variable stars are called Cepheid variables because the first one was found in the constellation of Cepheus. So Henrietta was tasked with measuring how these Cepheid variables changed in brightness from day to day, week to week, right? Is that what she was doing? Yeah. So eventually she was focusing solely on them because she realized, wow, these things not just change randomly, they changed in predictable rates. So one star would go from bright to dim in one day. Every time. It wasn't one day and then 10 days and then a few hours. It was one day every single time. And that repetition made it so valuable for measurement. Okay. Uh, Actually, let's play an audio clip that illustrates this, again, from the production of Silent Sky at the First Folio Theater, in which they're talking about Cepheid variables. Maybe you could set this up for us. Sure. Annie Jump Cannon has discovered Henrietta staying up late at night doing her own research on these variable stars. And this is the conversation that ensues. Annie Cannon is played by Jeannie Affelder. May I see what you sit here all night doing? Well, the Cephids, of course. You certainly have a knack for finding them. I'm finding that finding them isn't worth much if they don't mean anything. And right now, they don't. They might. I'm going on 2,000 of them. I'm starting to think it's like counting grass. You can count it, but why? I do know the feeling. Show me what you found. Okay, so she's looking for a pattern, and she's frustrated because she can't find a pattern. It's like... You know, uh, as she says, counting uh, blades of grass. I mean, if there's no pattern there, then it's, uh, you know, it's kind of a, like counting the, the holes in the ceiling tiles here. It's, you know, might divert you for a while, but it's generally <laughs> worthless. Indeed. So, so what, what kind of pattern was she looking for? Well, she didn't know. Of course, many scientists, you have a lot of data, but data is just data until you organize it. So when she organized it in the right way, she could see a very clear pattern where these stars, again, because they have regular cycles of brightness to dim, they're easy to measure. Now, at this time, we did not know how big the universe was, how big the Milky Way was. We couldn't tell if galaxies were inside our own or outside because we didn't have a standard candle. This is part of Henrietta's incredible discovery. Okay. So this was addressing one of the really difficult problems in astronomy, which is measuring the distances to things that are very far away. And, uh, you know, standard candle, I mean, you can think of it this way. If you have a neighborhood and everybody only has 100-watt light bulbs, but you know they're all 100-watt light bulbs, then you can tell how far they are. But, of course, if the wattage is varied, then, you know, you don't have a standard brightness. So this was a situation where with the Cepheid variables, you could tell how far away they were with nothing but basically a calendar. You see that they get bright and dim over the course of 12 days or something, and now you know how many watts it is, how bright it is, right? Exactly. You could say, well, if it's supposed to be this bright at its peak, but it looks this bright, it obviously do a little bit of math, and you can figure out how far away it is, which the mind boggles at the beautiful elegance of this discovery. Uh, And this, of course, was the key for Edwin Hubble, right? I mean, he took these data, or, you know, he was able to use this standard candle to figure out how far away the galaxies were and and, and, and make a big discovery. Not bad. And I will say to Hubble's credit, he credited Henrietta. He was one of the, the big names who wanted to make sure that people knew he was using her approach. Well, that's good of him. I mean, after all, he, he took distances based on Henrietta Leavitt's work. He took, you know, the speed of these galaxies based on the work of a guy at Lowell Observatory in Arizona, Vesto Sliver. And he made this plot. And suddenly we know something that was called the biggest discovery, science discovery of the 20th century. The universe is expanding. Did she eventually become an astronomer? I mean, in the sense that she could put on her business card, astronomer. (laughs) One of the beautiful details that we do have about Henrietta, and we don't know a ton, is that on one of the last censuses that she took, that was the job title that she gave herself. When you fill in, what do you do? She said very proudly, capital A, astronomer. (laughs) All right. Lauren Gunderson, Thanks so very much for speaking with us. This was such fun. Thanks. Lauren Gunderson is the playwright of Silent Sky. What do you do when you feel a code coming on? Why you crack it? Code breaking is essentially the science of using what you know about the underlying structure of a language to begin to pry open any kind of secret message that must have been written in that language originally. The story of a woman whose pattern recognition abilities helped defeat the Nazis, and her code-breaking was self-taught. That's Ape Exne. This episode, 
Decode Her on Big Picture Science. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you've ever done the cryptogram puzzle in the newspaper, then you've been a code breaker. But of course, you're not the first. We're talking about the women in history who were computers and coders in this episode of Big Picture Science, and now one who was a gifted code breaker. One of America's first female code breakers would eventually crack encrypted Nazi communications during the war. But long before she took on the famous German Enigma machine, and yes, the British mathematician Alan Turing was not the only genius who could claim a win against this device, 23-year-old Elizabeth Smith was busy inventing the very science of code-breaking. She came to it via an unusual route, as a member of a cadre of young people on an estate outside Chicago called Riverbank. There, a gilded-age tycoon named George Fabian was eager to indulge and to finance an esoteric obsession, namely that William Shakespeare was not really Shakespeare. George Fabian believed that the true author of Shakespeare's plays was his contemporary, Francis Bacon. And he believed that the proof of Bacon's authorship was actually hidden in the form of secret messages in the original printings of Shakespeare's plays from the 1600s. Fie, fie, unknit that threatening, unkind brow, and dart not scornful glances from those eyes. To wound thy lord, thy king, thy So Elizabeth Smith, collaborating with William Friedman, the man who would become her husband, set out to crack the code that would prove that the bard wasn't really the bard. So the theory at the time was that these messages had been woven into Shakespeare's plays in the form of sort of slight alterations in the letter forms themselves. So sort of the loop on a B or on a D in Roman or Italic form might be slightly different in different places in the book. And the idea was that Bacon had used these slight variations in letter forms to stand for different letters in the text that could then be extracted in the form of a secret message. But in the end, they could not bring home the bacon. Shakespeare's plays contained no secret code written by Francis Bacon. And by the time the Freedmans had decided that to think otherwise was to go the way madness lies, America had entered World War I. The pattern-seeking talents of Elizabeth and William were urgently needed for another purpose. The American military was completely unprepared to read the secret messages of the enemy. America didn't have any code breakers. It didn't have anyone who knew how to read secret messages without knowing the key and solve them. And so in desperation, the army turned to George Fabian and these kind of people who were involved in this esoteric literary project and asked if he would lend them to the American war effort reading German messages. The work of Elizabeth and William during this time established the lexicon of code breaking. A codebreaker is just somebody who solves a secret message without knowing the key. Cryptanalyst is, is synonymous with codebreaker. They, they mean the same thing. A cryptographer is somebody who makes codes, who designs uh, codes to be secure and, and secretive. So a cryptographer designs a code and the codebreaker takes it apart. Both William and Elizabeth were talented codebreakers, but only one has been enshrined in history as a pioneering codebreaker. Not anymore. I'm Jason Fagoni. I'm the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Elizabeth and William Friedman began outwitting America's foes in World War I by cracking coded German messages and, in the pre-computer era, doing so with only pencil and paper. 
Jason, maybe you can give us some idea of the kind of codes that were being used at this time, because, you know, this 100 years ago, radio was not such a big deal in the First World War. They had field telephones and, I, I suppose, carrying paper messages. I mean, what sort of codes were being used and where? Right. So it, it was really just the dawn of the radio age. So radio was beginning to be used to send secret messages. What would happen is um, in Washington, the army would intercept these radio messages and other kinds of messages that were sent in more old-fashioned ways. And then they would write down the garbled text that they couldn't solve. And then they would send that in the mail out to the Illinois Prairie, where uh, George Fabian had his 350-acre estate, which is called Riverbank, which is where Elizabeth and William were, were working. And so these packages of mail would arrive on the Illinois Prairie from Washington, and then Elizabeth and William would sit across the table with each other with just pencil and paper and, and start to solve these messages. Can I ask a question of, for Jason and for Seth about, about these radio transmissions? So when they were in, intercepted, how does it come across over the airwaves? Is someone saying it, or is it Morse code? It's dots and dashes of Morse code. So, can so you give A me is da, and if you follow A with a B, then it would be da 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 So that's A, B. There you go. They wouldn't understand them. They would just write down a line of what looked like just absolute gobbledygook. How, how sophisticated were the messages? Because I think people who read the Sunday papers are familiar with you know simple uh, replacement codes where uh, E is replaced by Q and T is replaced by L and so forth and so on. And these are just puzzles in the Sunday Times. I assume that that's you know that the actual messages being transmitted by the Germans were more sophisticated than that. They were, but I think the basic idea of a code or a is something that anybody can grasp. There are different systems, different combinations that can be used. You can have a system of secret writing that mixes and matches codes and ciphers, or you can have a polyalphabetic cipher so that it's not just one alphabet that's being substituted, but multiple alphabets. Can you give us a sense of how they went about cracking these? Just an idea. So they're sitting in a room. They're actually inventing code breaking as they go along, William and Elizabeth. And how do you do it? Is it trial and error? Is it a mathematical formula? How do you go about cracking a code? So this is one of the uh, beautiful and wonderful things that drew me to the Freedmans, which is that when they started out breaking codes, the science of code breaking was still very young in America. It wasn't very well developed. And so they, they weren't exactly starting from scratch, but they very quickly reached the end of what was already known in America, and they had to invent their own methods. So you know, a really basic method that's applicable in all sorts of situations is frequency counts. And anybody who's done a cryptogram in the newspaper will understand that the basic idea here, the most frequent letter in the English language and in many other languages is E. So the first thing that you do when you look at the cryptogram is you try to find what the E might be. The second most frequent letter in the English language is T. But the thing is, the frequencies of various letters are different according to different languages. So just by performing a frequ basic frequency count on a, a message, a lot of the time you can discover which language that message is written in. And that starts to give you a little bit of a hook to begin to pry it open and find the secret message inside. I mean, there are all kinds of different techniques that they develop to do that. Code breaking is essentially the science of using what you know about the underlying structure of a language to begin to pry open any kind of secret message that must have been written in that language originally. What, what was their success rate? I mean, were they figuring out one in a hundred messages, one in ten, or did they get almost all of them, or did they get almost none of them? I think they got almost all of them. Yeah, I, re <laughs> I really do. I mean, I think one reason is Elizabeth had a gift. She didn't start as a mathematician, and this is one thing I love about her. She began as a poet. She was trained as a poet. She studied poetry and, and literature in college. Um, I had always thought before I worked in this book that code breaking was about math, right? I, the person that I always had in my mind was Alan Turing, you know, famous mathematician. But Elizabeth comes from a completely different tradition. She didn't have mathematical training. And she just turned out to be a genius for seeing patterns. She becomes a minor celebrity during her time working with uh, the Coast Guard. Uh, they drew on her talent during Prohibition to intercept the message of rum runners. And she was uh, cracking codes as many as, what, 20,000 messages a year or something. So they really depended on her. Um, and you, you lay out these, these courtroom scenes where she is called to testify about how she deciphered these messages. And sometimes she got some pushback from people who were um, skeptical that this woman sitting there in the dress and the handbag really could have cracked these difficult codes. And what was her reaction to that? And, and how did she prove her worth there in the courtroom? 
This is something that I never knew about before I began researching the book, was how uh, heavily these gangsters in the Prohibition era relied on secret messages to organize their criminal activities, to arrange the shipments of rum and other liquor uh, on the ocean. And they were able to run circles around the Coast Guard because at first the Coast Guard didn't have any code breakers, so they called on Elizabeth. Literally, a man from the government showed up on her door and asked her to start solving puzzles for America in 1925. And like you said, she did this thousands of messages a year. She decrypted from these gangsters. And then eventually prosecutors would want to try these guys in court. And for the case to stick, they needed somebody to come in and explain to a jury how these messages were decrypted because it seemed kind of like magic. It was as if Elizabeth was able to read the thoughts of some of the leading criminals of her era. And so this, you know, petite five foot two woman would walk into a courtroom and you'd have, you know, 20 to 25 gangsters sitting at the uh, at, at, at the oh defense my. table. And this American housewife would walk in in a pink dress and a pink hat with a flower pinned to the brim. And she would sit in a witness stand and she would just stare these guys down and she would explain exactly what she did. And she would make the case that it was science, that there was no uncertainty involved. And she would defend her science and her craft and her reputation. Let's move on to World War II, because by World War II, clearly technology had moved on. Uh, the demands for cryptography had moved on because of the greater use of radio. Tell us a little bit of the uh, the scene there from the standpoint of people working in this field. So technology progressed, and the big difference in World War II is that by that time you had the development of these cipher machines like the Enigma machine, the famous uh, German Enigma machine. There were others. The Japanese had a, a similar machine that was uh, called Purple by the Americans. But uh, these are essentially electromechanical devices. They're basically typewriters for secret messages, right? So you type one letter and it replaces that with another letter. And the internal mechanisms make sure that the replacement happens in so many different possible combinations that you could never solve the secret message by brute force alone. So it, it dramatically increases the difficulty for a code breaker. But the other thing is that um, not all messages during World War II were sent with uh, cipher machines like the Enigma. Uh, older methods continued to be in use. And uh, one of the things that made Elizabeth so valuable in 1940 when she began breaking uh, Nazi messages was that a lot of the methods that were used by Nazi agents to send radio messages were very similar to the methods that were used by the rum runners in the 1920s and 1930s. So they were using similar sorts of uh, clandestine radio equipment and very similar sorts of codes, at least in the very beginning of World War II. And, and so uh, when the American government went around looking for someone to try to decrypt these radio messages that Nazi spies were beginning to send from spy rings based in South America, the person who was really best prepared to break those messages just so happened through an accident of history to be this woman who had spent the last 15 years uh, doing that very same kind of work to catch rum runners and gangsters. It was Elizabeth Friedman who was just ready to go. She had the team. She's the first woman to lead a code-breaking team. She gave herself an amazing title, cryptanalyst in charge. So early in the war, say 1940, Elizabeth encounters some of the Enigma traffic, correct? And and Enigma, I mean, they, it was kind of a substitution code that changed with every letter kind of thing. I mean, it was, you know, it is a mechanical thing. Everybody, I think, is aware of Alan Turing's contribution to this and, and the, the discussion of the Turing machine and so forth and so on that was built to do this. But what were they doing uh, early on in, in, in the 1940s? So Elizabeth and her Coast Guard team, they were the first Americans to ever solve an Enigma system. They did it in 1940. They didn't know what they were looking at. It turned out that the messages they were solving had been sent by a neutral Swiss unit. They were in German. They didn't know that going in, but they had to figure out how to solve that Enigma system. And it gave them some experience and some familiarity with solving Enigma systems that helped them uh, later on in the war when they started to see messages in Enigma systems more and more often. Elizabeth's piece of the Enigma project was a much smaller piece of it. She was focused on Enigma machines that were being used by Nazi spies who were stationed in South America. The Nazis had sent people into South America to try to listen to Allied shipping traffic and steal Allied secrets. And they were transmitting some of these secrets back to Berlin and Hamburg on the radio. And I wonder if you could say that Elizabeth Friedman, by the work that she did cracking these Nazi codes in Argentina, if she and her group saved the U.S. from a Nazi invasion from South America? I think that might be overstating it a little bit. How would you state it? 
I do think that she played a major part in eliminating the threat that was posed by Nazi spies in South America. Nazi spies had gone into South America early in the war because it was a good place for them to listen and intercept messages that the Allies were sending. They could gain uh, insight into the Allied war machine. And ultimately, her work solving these messages that were being sent by Nazi spies in South America put a stop to that threat. Probably the most important effect of that was that she helped to separate Nazi Germany from Argentina. She severed their secret relationship and made it impossible for Argentina to continue to support the German regime. So yeah, I mean, it's an incredible story to me. An American housewife swept the Western Hemisphere (laughs) clean of Nazi spies during the Second World War, smashed these rings and eliminated a, a potential threat. And yet, because her work had to remain secret and also because of the publicity grabbing habits of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI. The American people never knew that story. They never knew the depth of skill and heroism that that her work represented. However, we do know about William Friedman's. So that brings me to this question. He is remembered today, I mean, before your book came out, he is remembered as a pioneering cryptographer. And I think that the National Security Agency still uses some of his methods. And although he recognized Elizabeth as his equal, and the people that worked with Elizabeth recognized her talents and knew she was invaluable, history remembers William Friedman and not Elizabeth Friedman. And you said that her job required secrecy, but so did his. So why don't we remember Elizabeth? Uh, I think there are a couple of reasons. One is just the sexism of the time assumed that William was the primary driver of a lot of work. It was actually their dual work, right? So he ended up overshadowing her unjustly. And the other reason is that powerful men around Elizabeth at various points in her career stole her work. And they stole the credit for things that she did, namely uh, J. Edgar Hoover. And after the war, J. Edgar Hoover came out and said to the American people, the FBI smashed these dangerous Nazi spy rings in South America. We eliminated this threat. And we are ready to accept your gratitude. I mean, he, he, he literally went out and wrote first-person articles in major American magazines talking about how the FBI smashed the Nazi spy rings in South America. And there was nothing Elizabeth could do because her files were all stamped top secret ultra and because J. Edgar Hoover was J. Edgar Hoover. Well, Jason Vigoni, thank you so much for joining us in studio. Jason is the author of The Woman Who Smashed Codes, a true story of love, spies, and the unlikely heroine who outwitted America's enemies. Jason, thanks so much. Thank you, Molly and Seth. That was really fun. People who are fans of World War II films uh, usually ascribe our victory in the war to, you know, the brave soldiers, sailors, marines, aviators uh, that participated. And of course, that is true. But one should not underestimate the importance of the code breakers, because although they were sitting behind desks, not in trenches or not in tanks, their contributions made the big picture changes in so many arenas. This code breaking wasn't just working puzzles, it was winning the war. I'm struck by the parallel between Elizabeth Friedman studying these patterns of letters until she could break coded messages, and the astronomer Henrietta Leavitt scouring over these thousands of photographic plates looking for patterns in the changes of brightness of stars. They were both pattern hunters. Well, in a sense, that they can look at data, raw data, and seeing that there's a pattern in that. So in that sense, yes, it is parallel. It takes stamina and determination to be the first woman doing anything in science. Women have both, but creating a climate that supports their talents, that's challenging. The founder of the group Girls Who Code takes on that challenge next. It's Decode Her on Big Picture Science. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. We've been talking in this episode of Big Picture Science about women in history whose remarkable scientific achievements are not well known, but that helped shape the fields of modern information technology, crypto analysis, and astronomy. The stories of these women help us to correct the false impression that mathematics, physics, and coding are activities exclusively for those with a Y chromosome. Women know that that's not accurate, but it can take a particular kind of resilience to be in the tech sphere where day after day you might be the only woman in the room. In Silicon Valley, for example, men hold 75% of the tech jobs, women-led companies receive only 2% of venture capital funding, and a recent study shows that the gender pay gap in tech is greater than the national average. Silicon Valley didn't get the nickname Brotopia for nothing. The vestiges of male culture also persist in engineering. Despite progress, women made up half of NASA's astronaut class of 2013, for example, and recently two graduates were scheduled for the first all-female spacewalk at the International Space Station. But at the last minute, the astronauts discovered that the spacesuits didn't fit. The torsos were tailored for men, not women, and the historic walk was postponed. Two men performed it instead. Earlier we heard Reshma Sajani's reaction to the 60 Minutes episode in which solutions for closing the gender gap drew on the advice of a male coder. While her female-run organization, Girls Who Code, along with many other similar groups, have been tackling the gender disparity for years, the deference to male expertise is precisely why organizations like hers exist, says Ms. Sajani. Her group aims to encourage the momentum of a young girl's natural enthusiasm for math and science and keep it going. The nonprofit Girls Who Code, founded by Ms. Sujani in 2012 and headquartered in New York City, educates young girls around the country through ongoing academic and club activities. But for girls and women who can also use some practical advice in hanging in there, Reshma Sujani's new book is Brave, Not Perfect. Reshma, we've heard stories about the remarkable women who worked during the 20th century as coders, astronomers, mathematicians, and one woman who was a code breaker. Women have always been interested in science and technology. Opportunities for women at the time that these women lived in the 20th century were limited. Are opportunities still limited in the areas of math, tech, and computer science for women today? You know, I would say yes and no. So, uh, yes, I think that, you know, historically, we've always seen contributions of women in computer science. We just didn't know about them, right? The world's first programmer, the first computer, the ENIAC, was manually programmed by six brilliant women. Ada Lovelace was the world's first ever computer programmer. You know, you had Mae Jeminson, the engineer and astronaut, Grace Hopper, Katherine Johnson. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And I think that there are so many women that are contributing in technology today. I think we just have to make sure that they're successful. So, you know, we know that historically, I think less than 20 black women in the history of our nation have received more than a million dollars of seed capital to fund their businesses. There are plenty of women of color who have tremendous ideas, but we need to make sure that venture capitalists are actually funding their tremendous ideas, right? So it's like whose ideas, whose innovations, whose brilliance actually gets to get furthered and supported. And that's why the work that we do at Girls Who Code is so important because we're we're teaching our girls to like not only come up with their ideas but to build sisterhood and connection with one another so that if they want to build that algorithm, you know, create that app, right, design that game, that they have a community of support and women who will actually help them make that possible. We started this program with a statistic that women make up only one-fourth of the tech sector. Uh, we're out here in, in Silicon Valley, so that is just in our backyard. Uh, and you report that the number of women graduating with degrees in computer science is actually declining. So there really is this gender imbalance, and I wonder if you could say more about why that is. In the 1980s, if you walked into any computer science classroom, it would have almost been close to 40%. 
And then in the 80s, 90s, 2000s to today, that, that number has precipitably declined. And I think that that's for two reasons. You know, one, I think it has to do with culture, right? In the 1980s, we saw the birth of the programmer, right? Like the dude in a hoodie sitting in a basement somewhere, drinking a Red Bull, and he's staring at a screen. And we saw him on Revenge of the Nerds, Weird Science. And little girls looked at that image and they said, you know, not only do I not want to be him, it turned girls off. And we know that culture matters, right? But in media, our girls get a Barbie doll that says, I hate math. Let's go shopping instead. We find sweatshirts in Forever 21 that say, I'm allergic to algebra. We have movies like Mean Girls. You know, we see episodes like 60 Minutes. And all of these things are like daggers in our hearts, right? It's every time you don't see yourself. You don't see that someone like you is in that field. You no longer think that it's possible. So it's self-reinforcing. So if um, you look out and you see a sea of male faces behind computers, you know, if we're talking about the tech sector, you don't feel that you belong. A young girl Mm -hmm. doesn't feel that she belongs. Yep, exactly. And then I think it's, you know, we have been raised as girls to be perfect. And, you know, we have been taught that we that our mindset is fixed. We're either good at something or we're bad at something. And the thing about coding is it's a process of iteration. It's a process of failure, right? The annoying semicolons in the wrong place, you got to do it again and again and again and again. But if we're raising our girls to give up before they even try, the minute that they hit a bit of challenge or that there's a perception out there that something is hard or there's a perception out there that there's something that, well, that's just for boys, they're not going to attempt it. And if they attempt it and it doesn't come to them right away, they're going to move away from it very quickly. So oftentimes that voice in our head that tells us, oof, I don't, I don't know how to do that. I'm not good at that. Oh, my God. I, you know, that's what causes us to drop out. And that, to me, is the perfectionism bravery dynamic. 50% of young women today in CS classes will drop out by the time that they graduate. And it's not because they're not doing well in the classroom. I want to look at solutions. And one of the issues that you had with the 60 Minutes program about closing this gender gap in tech is it perpetuated this idea that the solution for getting women into tech begins in kindergarten. What would you say the problem is? Yeah. So I think the 60 Minutes piece had a fallacy that the problem is that we have a pipeline problem, right? That the reason that we have such a massive gender imbalance is that there aren't enough women. And that's just not true. Right. Because the pipe when you talk about it as a pipeline problem, we overlook the fact that there are more complex factors at play, like cultural bias and discrimination. There are plenty of women that are in the pipeline that these companies can hire. They're simply not hiring them. There's plenty of women that are standing up freshman year, sophomore year, saying, I want to I want to major in computer science. But because of the microaggressions that happen in the classroom and college campuses, you know, in where there are a vast majority of male professors Many women say, you know what, I can't do this. And so we have to solve those problems. I think I've heard it referred to as the leaky pipeline. Mm -hmm, The leaky pipeline. Right, the pipeline is leaky all throughout. And you have to fix those problems, but just by simply saying, well, we just need more of them. It's just not true. Were you interested in science um, when you were a young girl? No, I was terrified of it. And, and, you know, both my parents came here as refugees, um, and they were able to come to this country because they were both engineers. So my parents were super technical. And my dad would sit there at the dinner table, and he would ask me math questions, and it didn't come to me right away. And so I just got it in my head at a young age. I just wasn't good at it. And so it haunted me in every aspect of my life. Like, I didn't feel comfortable balancing my checkbook. Right. I had my dad do my taxes until I got married. And, now, and then my husband did my. Ta- you know what I mean? Like I got so caught up in this narrative that I wasn't technical. I wasn't mathematically inclined. I was bad with numbers. So there are all these narratives that I told myself that in many ways uh, held me back. How did you right? how did you break that narrative? You know, I broke the I broke the narrative when I started building this organization and I started basically listening to my own gospel. And when I started writing my book, Brave Not Perfect, because a lot of these things started to click for me. I wonder if you could give us something very specific 
to plug this leaky pipe issue that you talked about, because it's not about, the problem isn't about getting girls interested in tech, but it's about sustaining their interest as they go along. Can you give us one specific thing? Well, I mean, we know, for example, I think that within the first three years of women in position in technical jobs, that that almost 30% of them will leave within the first three years. That so much and so much of that fact that women are leaving once they get that engineering job or that programming job at, you know, a tech company is that they don't feel like they belong, that they're still the only one. And so we know that there are cultural problems. I mean, there's been a huge amount of reporting done on sexual harassment claims that have happened at major technology companies. And so that has to change. Well, finally, Reshma, I know that your organization, Girls Who Code, is one of a number of organizations trying to close the gender gap. And I wonder if you could just name some of them for us. Sure. I think that there are so many incredible women and women-based organizations that are doing this work. Kimberly Bryan at Black Girls Code is just a huge role model. She's incredible. And she has been working tirelessly, you know, since 2012 to really think about how do we get more black women and Latina women, you know, into this field. NC Witt has been doing this work for so long uh, with their Aspirations Awards and with the work that they do on college campuses to figure out, you know, how do we get more women in technology. Um, Code 2040 has done tremendous work later down in the pipeline of basically helping, you know, technical people of color to basically get positions in these companies and to stay there and to feel supported so that they don't leave. CSMY, you know, Ruth has been doing incredible work in galvanizing the community and getting people involved in this field. Aya Badir, my dear friend who started Little Bits, you know, designed a toy company to get more kids, you know, tinkering and learning about technology early on, and the vast majority of her users are girls. I mean, the list goes on and on and on and on and on. There are so many incredible, incredible women who are doing this work and been doing this work for a very long time. Well, Reshma Sajani, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Reshma Sajani is the head of Girls Who Code and the author of the book, Brave, Not Perfect, Fear Less, Fail More, and Live Bolder. Thanks to the unrestrained talents of those who help us produce this show, senior producer Gary Niederhoff, assistant producer Sarah Derwin, and operations manager Barbara Vance. I am executive producer Molly Bentley. Thanks also to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit scientific and education organization whose scientists study the origin and nature of life. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to an episode of Big Picture Science called Decode Her. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, well, you'll find past episodes in our archive at bigpicturescience.org. You may be listening to our radio show, but did you know we're also a podcast? Subscribe to the BiPiSci podcast, and you'll never miss an episode. You'll find links on our website to the platforms that carry us. Question, why all women? Oh, this is great. Pickering got fed up with the boys he was sent and said, really said this, that his housekeeper could do a better job. So he hired her, and she did better. Now it's quite a women's world up here. Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.